0: Thank you, Anderson. I am not Chris Cuomo. I'm Michael Smirkanish, in for Chris, who is off tonight. Excited to be here. Welcome to Primetime. A load to tackle this hour. In our fight to crush this pandemic, amid all our recent gains against the virus, a new major travel ban is about to go into effect starting Tuesday. The Biden administration will be restricting travel to the U.S. from India, where cases are absolutely exploding. This won't apply to permanent U.S. citizens or humanitarian workers, but on May 4th at midnight, non-U.S. citizens won't be able to come to America from India until this ban is lifted. The country is in dire straits, reporting more than 300,000 COVID cases for the ninth day in a row. Crematoriums are overflowing with bodies. Hospitals are out of oxygen for patients. And multiple variants are circulating there. Only about 2% of India is vaccinated right now. Here in America, we can't afford any more setbacks. We're so close to some semblance of normalcy. The White House just announced today 100 million Americans are now fully vaccinated. That's 30% of the U.S., which is amazing. But what would be more amazing is if the other 70% would join in, or even 50% more, to achieve herd immunity. 26% of Americans right now say they will not get the vaccine among Republicans that number is 44%. So how do you change minds of folks like this?
1: Are you getting vaccinated? Get no,
2: I don't need a vaccine. I had COVID last March, sick for all the five hours. Yeah. I don't need a vaccine for that.
3: And we're the independent freedom people of America and we make our own decisions.
0: We're at a tipping point now at our lowest number of cases daily since October, but now comes the hard part convicting the vaccine hesitant to go and get their shots. Supply is now outweighing demand in many parts of the country. On Thursday, in my hometown of Philadelphia, at a mass vaccination site, there were 4,000 extra doses. The same situation exists on the opposite coast in Los Angeles. LA County has more vaccine than people who want it. They're down at least 50% in filling appointments at all county sites. So what do we do about those we need to help us stay safe who aren't joining the fight? An interesting opinion today from a former federal prosecutor, Michael Stern. It was published in USA Today in which he says it's time to start shunning the vaccine hesitant. They're blocking COVID herd immunity. And also, quote, businesses should make vaccination a requirement for employment. A COVID outbreak can shut down a business and be financially devastating, And failure to enforce basic health and safety measures is not fair to employees who have to work in offices, factories and stores where close contact is required. Things should get personal too. People should require friends to be vaccinated to attend the barbecues and birthday parties they host. Friends don't let friends spread COVID. I think he's right, let the shunning begin. But I'm concerned that not even that would reach people in rural areas. They're already leading their lives as if the pandemic never happened. And I have to say this, while well-intentioned, the president's messaging of late is not incentivizing. I see and hear conflicting messages. This week, he announced the new CDC guidelines that if you've been fully vaccinated, you can take your masks off outdoors unless you're in a big crowd. And if you're indoors with others fully vaccinated, the same. But even when the president himself is outdoors, we still sometimes see him in a mask, like today, and I can't help but think that he missed a great teachable moment. Imagine if at the beginning of the speech Wednesday to a joint session of Congress with some dramatic flair, he turned to the Speaker of the House and the Vice President, and they all removed their masks in unison, assuming, of course, that others in the room were all vaccinated. In other words, maybe the way to reach the unvaccinated is to show them those who are protected and returning to our normal lives. The president was asked in a new interview if he'll take his mask off more often. Here was his answer. Sure, sure. I mean, but what I'm going to do, though, because the likelihood of my being able to be outside and people
2: not come up to me is not very, very high. So it's like, look, you and I took our masks off when I came in because look at the distance we are. But if we were, in fact, sitting there talking to one another close, I'd have my mask on and I met you would have a mask, even though we've both been vaccinated. And so it's, it's it's a small
0: precaution to take that has a profound impact. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. Bottom line, it's time to close this out. Maybe we need a better carrot and a bigger stick. Joining me now, CNN medical analyst, former Baltimore Health Commissioner, Dr. Lena Wen. She has a brand new op ed out today in the Washington Post on what the vaccinated should be able to do now. Okay, doctor, let me cut to the chase. Are we getting to herd immunity in 2021?
4: I am very concerned that that's not going to happen. I mean, I think it's great that we now have 40 percent of adults in America who are fully vaccinated. That's fantastic. And credit to the Biden administration for doing that. But those are the people who are really eager to be vaccinated. There are a lot of people who I think are will still get vaccinated. We need to convince them. We need to help make sure that they understand the incentives for vaccination. But when you look at the numbers, there are, what, 30 percent of Americans who say they're not going to get vaccinated. And given that children are not yet eligible, at least children under 16, are not yet able to receive the vaccine. I just don't see us reaching the numbers we need to to get to herd immunity this year. That said, I still think that we're going to see a decline in the level of infection over the summer. So can we sell this? And if so, how? I think there is this pervasive narrative that we have to overcome. And that narrative is Why should I get vaccinated? What's in it for me? And to some people who were so eager to get the vaccine, they can't really understand that question because they said, but the vaccine saves your life. Except that there are a lot of people who don't think that COVID poses that much of a threat to them. Maybe they're younger or healthy. Maybe they've had COVID before and survived it. They don't quite see why they need to be vaccinated. So yes, we need to address their concerns, But I think we also, as a country, starting with the president, need to do a lot better job at demonstrating these are all the things you now can do as a result of being vaccinated. You can see your friends, your family. And if you so choose, you can remove your mask and go to indoor settings and do these things that you couldn't have done before. We need to do a lot better at selling those incentives.
0: I'm parroting you when I say that there was a missed opportunity earlier this week when perhaps that address to a joint session of Congress could have been delivered with no one wearing a mask inside the the well of the House of Representatives. Now, of course, that would presuppose that everyone who's in there had been vaccinated. Speak to that issue.
4: Yeah, I think that President Biden could have decided, and I recognize there's political risk here involved too, but he could have decided that He was only going to have fully vaccinated people who had proof of vaccination attend that joint session. And then in return, they could enter, by the way, they could also get a a negative test to be extra sure, but in return, they can go into the chamber, take off their mask, have no distancing, hug one another and essentially return to 2019. And then imagine if President Biden had started his address that way and said, look at where we are now. This is where the country can be at too. Let's please get vaccinated. I think that would have sent such a strong signal because frankly, presidents are role models. They role model public good public health behavior. Um, The former President Trump really did a poor job of this. And I I wonder if President Biden is trying to overcorrect and be overly cautious here. But I think over caution also has a price in that masks somehow become a performative act rather than a life saving act um, when it's really needed. And also it's really underselling the power of the vaccine.
0: So let me go back to that provocative essay in USA Today this morning. Do you believe that shunning is an option?
4: I don't think we are there yet, so there are a lot of people who are still unable to be vaccinated. They actually want to be. But we need to make vaccination the easy and convenient choice for them, including having vaccinations now be distributed from these mass vaccination sites that aren't now being used as much to doctor's offices, to churches, to schools, to workplaces. So we need to find people who actually want to be vaccinated. Then I think we can add a lot more incentives. I do think that personal incentives are appropriate. You can say, I'm having a dinner party or a wedding that's indoors. In order to do that without masks, the only way to do that safely is to make sure that everybody is vaccinated. Something like that, personal incentives, I think can also be really, uh, be really of help. And maybe um, instead of ha- asking for a vaccine passport, which has all kinds of negative connotations, we can see proof of vaccination as an extension of a health screen. Other people have to do symptom questionnaires and testing, but if you're vaccinated, you can bypass that. So in a sense, it's like an easy pass or a carpool lane. You can get to do the things that you want a lot faster.
0: Quick final question: Is the CDC communicating with appropriate clarity?
4: I think the CDC is in a tough place, but no, I don't think that they have been um, as clear and practical with their guidance. What should they be doing? What as should, as should they, they be really saying? I think they should be telling people at this point, if you're vaccinated, you are extremely well protected from getting coronavirus virus yourself and from spreading it. How you go about things at this point is up to you. There actually is no right or wrong answer. There are some people who are going to say, I still want to be really cautious and hunker down. I don't want to take any risks at all. Other people are going to say, I want to go back to all of my pre-pandemic life. And I actually think that that's fine. We should focus our energy on the unvaccinated. The people who are vaccinated are not a, a major public health threat. Let them do what they want to do to regain normalcy in their lives. That's what's going to give incentive for those who are not yet vaccinated.
0: Dr. Lena Wen, thank you so much for that expertise.
4: Thank you, Michael. Great to join you. You
0: too. Coming up, the new concern in Trump world over the Rudy Giuliani raid, plus those new allegations against Congressman Matt Gates. How seriously will prosecutors take the word of his indicted friend? We'll discuss with former FBI insider Andrew McCabe next. Our newest reporting tonight is that allies of President Trump are worried Rudy Giuliani could look to cut a deal. A Trump adviser tells CNN that with regard to the raid on Giuliani's home and office this week, it was a show of force that sent a strong message to a lot of people in Trump's world that other things may be coming down the pipeline. They see the same pictures you see of the FBI taking things out of Giuliani's apartment and office. As for what the feds have, well, the former mayor himself answered that question on his radio program.
5: They
3: went all the way back to the day I started representing the president. So they basically took all my files regarding my representation of President Donald J. Trump.
0: Here to help us sort out what the FBI is looking for, former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. Andrew, what does this mean for Donald Trump?
6: Well, first, Michael, uh, welcome to Friday night. Good to see you here. Um, it's a Thank very you. serious, it's a very serious development, certainly for Rudy Giuliani and anyone that Rudy Giuliani may have been involved with uh, in activities that could have crossed uh, the border for, uh, into illegality. And if if the former president is one of those folks, he should be very concerned Um, I think there's no question that the federal agents and prosecutors likely had a very, very strong case to make on the Farrah charge that we've heard about from the search warrant. They would never have gotten authorization to search his uh, office and home without that. Uh, It's what they get from the search warrant that is the big question right now for Rudy Giuliani and literally for everyone else who's come uh, within his orbit over the last few years.
0: To your last point, I would think that in order to be able to execute, to get permission to execute a search warrant on an attorney, an attorney who was at the time representing a sitting president of the United States, you would have to document probable cause times six.
6: At least, Michael, at least. Right. It's it's incredibly serious thing to execute a search warrant at an attorney's office, any attorney's office. And to, for that attorney to be the attorney for the now former president of the United States, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine a scenario in which the leadership in the Justice Department would have required a higher level of, um, you know, a really substantial allegations, solid evidence, and a case that is uh, undeniable. So I, I have to imagine that the case going into that search warrant was probably pretty strong.
0: If the focus of the investigation, Andrew, is whether former Mayor Giuliani was acting as an unregistered agent, is that a failure to check a box and fill out a form or something much more nefarious?
6: You know, it's listen, it's certainly a, it's a serious issue, right? There's a, The United States government has a strong interest in understanding who exactly is representing the interests of foreign governments when they come and lobby the U.S. government. So it's a serious thing. But it is typically handled in a very administrative way. So normally if DOJ finds out that someone uh, may be representing the interests of a foreign government and hasn't registered, they'll typically send them a letter and bring that to their attention. And usually those matters are resolved without a criminal prosecution. Um, So in this case, Uh, The the DOJ must have some reason to believe that there was a flagrant violation or a a particularly important one to pursue it with a a criminal investigation.
0: Let me turn your attention to another federal investigation, the Gates-Greenberg case. The question all political observers are wondering, if true, that reporting from the Daily Beast, why would Greenberg have put in writing the story of what occurred and—
6: In multiple drafts, you know that's a great question, Michael. And I think we can only speculate as to what Greenberg was thinking when he when he drafted that letter. But from my perspective, as you know, an experienced investigator from my time in the FBI, um, this looks a lot like an individual who is desperately trying to negotiate his way into a plea, and who knows. That on his own, he probably isn't worth it, isn't high enough profile, isn't important enough to generate that sort of interest, certainly from the president of the United States. So throwing Matt Gates's name in there in the context of, hey, this is someone who was involved in the criminal activity I've been charged with and therefore someone who I could take down with me is a way to increase the pressure on granting him a pardon. That's my guess as to what Greenberg was trying to accomplish here. Uh, Looks like it probably was not successful.
0: Don't you think that the feds, however, in looking at Greenberg and that which is in the public domain are saying to themselves, we got to have more
6: than just this guy's word? Absolutely. D- Greenberg is not a guy that you would feel comfortable going to trial with and putting the the you know the uh, success or failure of your case on his shoulders. You have got to corroborate everything that Greenberg tells you, which is one of the ways that this letter is significant. It is a consistent rec- uh, recitation of his culpability that took place before he was cooperating with the investigators. So, uh, in other words, He told this story to Roger Stone uh, long before he was trying to attract the attention of prosecutors and agents, and therefore could be seen as a consistent prior statement. So it, it could actually be used to bolster his credibility in that way.
0: Andrew McCabe, thanks so much. Thanks, Michael. Almost six months since the election, there are new numbers out on how many Americans actually still believe the big lie. Harry Enten, the Wizard of Odds, has the numbers. Charlie Dent unpacks their next. New CNN polling is bringing to light major divides among Americans on everything from COVID vaccine hesitancy to whether President Biden actually won the election fair and square. The numbers not only show a major gap between Democrats and Republicans, but among members of the grand old party itself. For a deeper dive on the numbers and division within the GOP, let's bring in the wizard of odds. That would be Harry Enten, CNN political commentator and former Republican Congressman Charlie Dent. Harry, to you initially, even with all those lost court cases, there's a huge divide on whether Joe Biden won legitimately
3: three in 10 Americans. What did the numbers tell us? exactly what you said is that nearly one out of every three Americans do not believe that Biden legitimately won this election. 30% say he didn't. You know, I have this sort of Mendoza line in my mind, right? You can get 10 people, 10% of people to believe basically anything, right? 10% of people believe that we didn't actually land on the moon, and that's false. We're well above that now. 30% of Americans believe that Joe Biden didn't win this election? My goodness gracious, what the heck is wrong with some people? The evidence is so clear. Of course, I'm, you know, an optimistic guy, and I will note that still two-thirds of Americans believe that Biden won the election legitimately. So I guess that's something to hang your hat on.
0: Harry, a follow-up to you. When you look at those numbers and look specifically at the GOP and see how many believe that Biden didn't win fair and square, doesn't that alone tell you It is still Donald Trump's party.
3: Uh, Yeah, to me, it definitely does. I mean, this is a crazy number. I mean, put it up on the screen right now. 70% of Republicans do not believe that Joe Biden legitimately won, won this election with enough votes. That is nuts. That is insane. And it shouldn't be surprising, although we don't have these numbers for you, that Donald, when you ask who's your favorite for the 2024 Republican nomination... Donald Trump is the overwhelming leader among Republicans right now. This is still Donald Trump's party. That doesn't mean it will be a year from now, two years, three years, when they ultimately hold the Republican primary in 2020, but the fact that 70% of Republicans do not believe the election results from six months ago is honestly one of the scariest statistics I've ever seen, and I've seen many of them.
0: Okay, Charlie Dent, a question for you. I wanna put on the screen something that former House Speaker Paul Ryan just said. It's totally at odds with what I was just describing with Harry. The either-or debate over fealty to Trump is going to fade, he said. The 2012 Republican vice presidential candidate laid this out in an interview with the Associated Press. I think circumstances, ideas, and new candidates are going to overshadow that whole
7: conversation. Is he right, Charlie? Well, I do think he's right that Donald Trump will become a more diminished figure over time. That said, uh, Donald Trump can cause a lot of problems in the 2020, 2022 midterms and the uh, presidential election in 2024. He can still cause a lot of problems, even though, look, he's not on social media anymore. We're hearing a lot less from him. And if you're a Republican and you're running in the midterm in 2022, the last thing you want is for Donald Trump to be making a lot of noise uh, because you want this election to be a a referendum, the midterm uh, to be a referendum, on uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats, not a choice election uh, between uh, the Democrats and, you know, Trump Republicans. So, but Trump is going to cause problems, but he is, but he will be more diminished.
0: Hey, Charlie, a question about the way in which President Biden is being perceived in your old congressional district. The Wall Street Journal just conducted dozens of interviews in the great Northampton County. And what they found, interestingly, is that feelings with regard to the president are only warm or very cold. In other words, they don't find a lot of real love for him. It's largely,
7: though, one extreme or the other. Are you surprised by that? Uh, no, I'm not. And the reason why is because Northampton County is a classic swing county. I represented it. But remember, many people voted for Joe Biden because he did not like Donald Trump. They wanted Joe Biden to stabilize the functioning of government, uh, to bring some sense of normalcy back to the way the White House was running and to deal with the, uh, the COVID virus, which he's done. Uh, but I think this agenda of the president's is very big. There's a lot of sticker shock. And I think many... believe that the the president has misread that mandate. uh, And I don't think a lot of voters voted for this kind of transformational change that they might see coming, at least with respect to the role of government in in people's lives after the pandemic has uh, abated. Harry
0: Enten, you know the history. The, The president's party usually loses in a midterm election. So here we are in these first 100 days, the Biden administration, they are going big or going home. Do you think that the go-big mentality is to enliven the base for the midterm election, or is it premised on the belief, hey, we might not have control of the Congress for those next two years. We better shoot for the moon
3: now. Why can't it be both, right? Uh, The idea being that, look... Historically, the president's party almost always loses in midterm elections. There have been three, I believe, in the last century and a half in which the president's party has not lost seats in the House of Representatives. So why not go big now? You have majorities. they are thin majorities, but they are workable majorities. So put forth the legislation you want. Go big. And maybe as a wonderful side effect, you may, in fact, be able to get more of your voters to turn out in the midterm election. And you know what? If you're a Democrat, you definitely welcome Donald Trump because that will only pump up the base even more.
0: Charlie Dent, quick final question, do Republicans care about debt anymore?
7: Uh, I think they do, and I think most Americans do. Sure, Republicans have a problem uh, on fiscal issues right now uh, in terms of their credibility, but that doesn't necessarily justify a Democratic spending blowout either. So I do hear more people, and you're hearing even some Democratic members of Congress who are concerned about the sticker shock of some of these proposals. So I do think it matters. Uh, There is risk associated with this level of expenditure. Maybe not in the short term, but you know we still talk about inflation from time to time. The laws of economics are still, are still alive and well, and uh, I don't think they can be ignored.
3: Harry Enten chicken is in short supply. On a different night, we'll get you to talk about that. Oh, that's awful news. Don't bring that up. You're going to make me sad. I thought we had a wonderful <laughs> segment. Now you're making me sad, Michael. <laughs> <name. laughs> Thank you,
0: Harry. Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate you both.
3: Thank you. You bet. Thanks.
0: So this is interesting. Up ahead, they helped convict the murderer of George Floyd. And now money appears to be pouring in for some of the witnesses who testified at the Chauvin trial. How come? And could it have wider implications for the justice system? A former top federal prosecutor takes it on next. More than 23 million people watched a jury find Derek Chauvin guilty in the murder of George Floyd. It was the first trial in Minnesota ever televised. The witnesses in the case became known all around the globe. We're now seeing multiple online fundraising efforts for folks like Darnella Frazier, who shot the video of Floyd's death, or Charles McMillan, the witness who wept on the stand, and Donald Williams, who told you on this show that he wasn't going to let prosecutors present him as an angry black man. The GoFundMe page set up by his cousin, which has raised more than 15 grand, says its mission is to help him, quote, get his life back on track. While Frazier's page, with its almost $700,000 raised, says, quote, this fund is to support the healing and the restoration of hope for Darnella Frazier, whatever that means to her. Here to help us sort out what this means for future high-profile trials is former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams. Counselor, this is what I would call a case of first impression. I've never seen it before, and I'm trying to wrap my head around it. I get that they provided an invaluable service. They stood up, they took note, they were willing to testify, but are we somehow setting a dangerous precedent here?
1: Yeah, you know, Michael, like in the grand scheme of things that ail our criminal justice system, this is not the hill to die on, I think. And just increasingly, our world is seeing crowdfunding as a way of people giving money back and forth to each other. Think about all the people you've heard of who've had cancer or lost a job or something like that. And it's just becoming a norm in society. Now, with respect to witness testimony, there's a lot of ways to ensure that the law ensures that witnesses are being honest and candid and truthful on the sand. Number one, if a witness lies, they can be charged with perjury. Number two, if someone is seen as bribing or paying off a witness, they can be charged with a crime. And number three, if it turns out that somebody has behaved improperly in the process, then, you know, you just, they, um, the whole thing can be thrown out. Um, So, you know, there's, any number of ways to correct um, what might appear to be misbehavior, but really isn't. It's just people engaging in almost a new kind of economy that, like you said, it's a case of first impression. We're just beginning to see it for the first time. Well, I fully acknowledge
0: that if you were to say it's a problem, I yeah. don't know how we'd police it. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you, you prevent it, but I'm worried. I'm worried about the future high profile case where maybe there's a witness who's going to offer testimony that is against popular sentiment. And now well, they think to themselves, boy that, that that could ruin a later a later payday. I mean, I get it if they lie and you could prove it, you could you could charge
1: them with perjury, but that's a hard thing to prove in many instances. Yeah, the issue here is crowdfunding. The issue here is not crowdfunding in trials, right? It's this new unpoliceable mechanism that exists in society and we just don't know how to deal with it. But here's the thing. Look, you can draw a pretty clear line if somebody says to somebody else, "I'll raise $50,000 for you if you get on this jury and acquit this individual." Now that's obviously a crime. If somebody says, "Here's $50,000 because of the fact that you're a juror, this is the outcome." Then of course that's a crime too, but it's a you know, merely the act of raising funds for a person, even though that's tied to their having engaged in, in this important civic act, you're just you're not going to be able to find anything unlawful or even police it unless, again, somebody is directing someone to, to, to engage in funny business with, with respect to their own testimony.
0: Okay, let, let me come at it from one different angle. Does it matter to your opinion whether the GoFundMe page is set up before or after the trial? W- what what if it's a high-profile case? The whole yeah. world knows that this witness's testimony is going to be key and boom, there all of a sudden is the page, maybe because people totally independent of that witness want to, you know, keep them honest and on the side of popular
1: sentiment. No, see, th- this is why, you know, talking to Michael Smirkanich is fun because this is a very first year of law school kind of debate, right, where you sort of dig into what the hypothetical might be, you would have to look at the facts of it. And why are they raising money, right? Now, look, there's no question that someone's life is significantly upended by being on a jury. Life is significantly upended being on what is clearly, right now, 21 years in, the trial of the century, right? So the expenses that this person is going to lose by being a juror might be something that could be perfectly lawful to raise funds about. If it's, let's put him on the jury, and you're going to have to gather evidence to find this out, but let's put him on the jury so he can convict this horrible defendant, then of course that's going to be unlawful. But it's just going to be something that uh, you'd have to take case by case. As in, look, again, any other crowdfunding matter, merely raising $50,000 for someone because they lost their job isn't unlawful. Raising $50,000 for someone so they, you know, um, because they lost their job so that they can then use that money to buy, I don't know, a Sherman tank and, and take up arms against the government, then that's unlawful.
0: Elliot, we're each being awarded two CLE credits for this conversation, so thank you for <laughs> participating.
1: Oh, love it. Anytime, Michael. Great talking. <laughs> okay. Ahead. Has there been any
0: transformational change with regard to policing in minority communities since the Floyd murder? We're gonna take a step back with a wise voice. Kamu Bell is here next. Funeral services were held today for Micaiah Bryant, the black 16-year-old girl shot and killed by a police officer during an April 20th confrontation in Columbus, Ohio, after she was spotted lunging at another young woman with a knife. You saw the police body cam video in that case, but the public still hasn't seen the body cams from this month's deadly shooting of Andrew Brown Jr. by deputies in North Carolina. So far, two family members say they've gotten to see only 20 seconds of just one of the four body cameras and another relative who was at the scene of the shooting disputes the prosecutors claim that Brown hit deputies with his car. The tension in America over policing and race is something that Camus Bell explores Sunday night in the season premiere of United Shades of America in his hometown of Oakland, where some activists are pushing the controversial defund the police idea.
5: Wait a minute. Why don't we take some of that money back and, like, give it to people who are, you know, qualified to deal with those issues without killing folks in the process? And at the same time, why don't we put money back into systems that build long-term, sustainable public safety and build an economy for everyone? That's the Defund 101. You know, if this was a business and we're giving 50 percent of our budget to one department that was failing across the board and killing people while they did so, you know, we would defund them immediately. Yes. Defund the police means we're taking money away from this current system where it's failing and investing in other systems that we think will succeed.
0: Kamal Bell joins me now to discuss. Thanks so much for being here. Good luck on the new season. Is there a messaging issue with defund the police? In other words, I love that chart. I love that explanation. But but do folks need to take a lesson from Frank Luntz, who said to the Republicans, estate tax? No, gotta be the death tax because then you can sell it.
5: Well, I think a lot of these slogans come from out of just trying to get people's attention initially. So I I think, you know, a lot of times as black people in this country, believe me, we've tried to be polite about things like, please don't stop being racist to us. Please stop killing us. And that hasn't worked. I mean, let's be honest, Martin Luther King Jr. was basically advocating we all should get along and he was assassinated. So it makes sense that eventually advocates and activists are like, we have to be less polite. Now, having said that, call it powdered donuts for all you want. That chart that we just showed, that you just showed, is hard to argue against. The thing
0: is, when you say defund the police, I think that it conjures up an image in some people's minds that you're going to send folks out there with a badge and not much more support to do a very deadly job. Here, I thought of one during the commercial break. You ready for this? How about unburden the police? Because what you're really saying is, like, like here's, a mental, here's a mental health crisis that's unfolding. Why send somebody out there with a gun if a gun isn't necessary in that case? I think we could sell that. We're trying to unburden the police and empower a mental health professional
5: yeah I mean I think when you do this like people have t- people I would just be clear black people had lots of different ways to say pay attention to what the police are doing in our communities and we've tried reform the police, we've tried community policing there have been lots of different slogans the fact that the fund is getting so much attention is a good thing and the fact is once you get past your fear of it, as I say in the episode at one point I was nervous about it and just pay attention to it but I think a lot of us, love to get caught up in the argument about the rhetoric and don't actually want to talk about ways in which we can create a safer society for our black and Latino communities
0: I know but you' you're giving you're giving folks a talking point it, it becomes just like you know the the border issue is it a crisis is it not a crisis? I, I don't want to uh, You know, beat it to death. I'm just saying that it's always struck me that the word choice, defund the police, as inspiring as it might be who want to rein in cops, I think it also fuels those who want to be supportive of law enforcement. T- tell me about well, the if, first episode of this season's show.
5: Well, we can do that. But also, I want to say, unburden the police is a thing that is about the police, not about the community. So I understand what you're saying, but as a black person... Unburden the, beast, unburden the police may sound like bringing more tanks to my neighborhood so they don't have to do as much work. So I think you're also about which perspective are you looking at, the perspective of the impacted community or the perspective of the community that's not impacted and wants to get involved. The first episode is about talking about the history of policing and how the the origins of policing, as I'm sure you know, come from the Barbados Slave Code, and which, is, which it says Slave Code, so we know that comes in racist. And we talk about the Kerner Report, which in 1968 said White racism has led to division in America, and a lot of that goes through law enforcement. But the Johnson administration didn't do anything with that. A few years later, Nixon starts the war on drugs, which is targeting black and brown folks. So regularly in this country, we talk about how do we make this better, but it ends up with police police getting more power, more military equipment, and, and less community control.
0: Final question. How confident are you that in the tragic aftermath of the killing, the murder of George Floyd, there has now been monumental change.
5: Zero. We know that since George Floyd, since Derek Chauvin was found guilty, more black and Latino people have been killed by cops. That happened even in Brooklyn Park with Dante Wright. And so I don't, there is no confidence until we actually have the bravery to look at the system and say, How do we fix the system of policing in America and redo it completely from the ground up? Because we cannot just keep talking about these things around the edges. And like I said, let's call it chocolate banana donuts for all I care. Let's actually redo the system.
7: Kamal,
0: best of luck with the new season. Thank you. And catch the season premiere of United Shades of America Sunday night, 10 Eastern, right here on CNN. We'll be right back. big weekend here on cnn including the premiere of the original series the story of late night you're going to learn all about the comic greats who reshape tv through generations beginning of course with the tonight show names like steve allen and johnny carson here's a preview and one of an unforgettable carson moments
3: keep your arm extended and uh put only one revolution on the uh, once around, once around uh, on the way The classic Ed Ames tomahawk. The fact that that was live, unexpected. Right
4: in the
5: nuts. Spectacular, it was spectacular.
2: And as Ames goes to retrieve the tomahawk, Carson grabs him by the arm, pulls him back. When Ed Ames threw that tomahawk and Johnny wouldn't let him <laughs> remove it.
6: <laughs> to watch how he works with Ed Ames to, to keep him in the moment and, and extend the laugh is just great stuff.
7: He just milks the laughter, he just waits. <laughs> I didn't even know you were Jewish. <laughs> I think Johnny Carson became Johnny Carson in that moment.
0: Watch the story of late night beginning Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Thank you so much for watching. And please join me for Smirkanish tomorrow and every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. CNN Tonight with Don Lemon
2: starts right now. Don? I watch every single weekend. And you know what I have to tell you? My favorite was Johnny Carson. When I was a kid, my, we, I would get into an argument with my sister. She would try to take the remote, or before remote, she'd try to change the channel, and I wouldn't let her. And we had to watch Johnny Carson every single night in the summer. On school nights, I couldn't do it. And then she said, once I moved out of the house and she moved on her own, she found herself watching Johnny Carson because of me. And she fell in love with him. He was the best.
0: Look at you. You're consistent. You were staying up late then, <laughs> and you are staying up late now.
2: And I learned from them. You know what you learn from Johnny Carson, especially Johnny, Johnny Carson? Timing. Timing. And uh, that silence is not the enemy uh, in broadcasting because usually anchors or people who do radio, as you know, sometimes they hate silence. They feel that they, like they have to fill every void or everything, you know, say something. And you don't have to. Sometimes the silence is much more powerful than actually trying to say something.
0: Yeah, the pause. The pause is very effective when necessary.
2: Like this. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Michael Smirconnich. <laughs> Have a great weekend. See you, I'll Don. be watching you tomorrow. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank See you, you pal. This is- Quality sleep is essential, and that's why
3: the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.